Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Good morning. This room is full of heroes today. And heroes come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah, we do. And the scripture is full of, as James writes about Elijah, people just like us. People just like us. Elijah was a man just like us. And the Bible is full of examples, good and bad, of people just like us. And as we read the scripture, we can learn a lot about ourselves. Uh, we can learn a lot about other people to help us to love people better, to love people well. You meant. You need first to understand people, and the scripture helps us to understand people. And so one of the ways to read the Bible and to find great significance in its stories is to do what Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, these things were written as examples for us. I'm the first to say that there is a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. Although Brooke's story the other week about jail and the... Uh, the uh, What's, what's the, the, the tent peg in the head? Yeah, that's a cool story. So there's a lot of weird things in the Bible and there's some obscure things of ceremonies and the rites and the rituals. But almost any portion of scripture, we can learn something about Jesus, about who God is. We can learn something about other people. Why is that story in the scripture? Well, it actually teaches us about other people and we can learn something about yourself. And so part of this series of heroes, and we're revisiting it, Heroes 2.0, is to look at some of the heroes of Scripture, and uh, some of them unsung and some of them well better known, and see what kind of good example do they set for us. So that's where we're going today. Should we cut to the live stream? Are we there? When you're ready. Ladies and gentlemen, would you put your hands together and welcome our live stream crowd this morning. All right. Welcome live, live streamers, live streamers, live savers. Uh, welcome live streamers, great to have you today. Uh, we have just introduced our Heroes uh, series today. I had the privilege of being able to share uh, along that theme today. We've looked so far in this uh, season of the series, season two. We've looked at Paul the Apostle. We've looked at Deborah, the great judge and leader. We looked last week at Thomas, redeemed for many of us. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, this week we're going to go back to the Old Testament, one of, uh, I'd say, my favourite Old Testament heroes, certainly a favourite uh, uh, hero in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at a man named Joseph. Joseph, often referred to as a dreamer. Uh, Joseph, often known for his passion, for his wisdom. Uh, Joseph, known to be a really awesome picture of Jesus. In many respects, rescuing his brothers, forgiving the very brothers that persecuted him, okay, and providing a, a pathway for them uh, out of their famine and out of their darkness. Joseph has many pictures of Jesus. In fact, uh, through over Jewish history and rabbinical history, um, there developed a strong tradition that the Messiah would come from the line of Joseph. So, uh, Messiah Ben Joseph, Ben basically means son of son of Joseph and there was a, a theory that the uh, a messianic line would come through Joseph that there would be a salvation figure from Joseph or like Joseph who would die and be raised from the dead 
again. And this is uh, in the Talmud and, and literature like that in the Jewish tradition. So Joseph plays a huge part both in Old Testament history. It sets up the story of the Exodus, basically, and uh, therefore also in a, in a lot of Jewish tradition. Well, the one thing I want to look at Joseph as I was reading back through his story in the last two weeks. I want to talk about Joseph the protector. Joseph the great protector. He was a dreamer. He was a visionary. There's many things he can be known for, but I want to focus on that today. Joseph the protector. Okay? No musical, no singing, no cartoons, just the scriptures. All right, so let's go. Genesis chapter 37. I know if I was one of those clever pastors, I would have cut up a Disney you know, movie or something. And No, no let's not do that. Okay. No. I do. I love the Joseph musical. I know. My, my mother took me to the Joseph musical when I was 10 in Sydney. I don't know. I remember that. Joseph, 30, uh, Joseph 37. Genesis 37 starts by talking about Jacob, who's Joseph's dad. Jacob's other name was Israel. Fine. So here's his story. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in Canaan. And this is the account of his family line. Joseph. Of all the sons, it mentions Jacob's family line is known for Joseph. It's telling us something right from the word go. This is Joseph's story. Joseph, who was a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives, plural, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Technicolor dream coat. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. As we read, you're going to see these words, love, hate, love, hate. Okay? Paints this picture. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. <laughs> Didn't learn, did he? Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. Hatred turned to jealousy. But his father kept the matter in mind. His father Get the matter in mind. You'll notice here a bit of a, a pattern that happens all through this story, that the pattern of two dreams. Uh, later on we read the baker and the, what's his name? The, 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 the cupbearer and then Pharaoh. Two dreams. So there's this, comp, there's this recurring thing in this story here about two dreams. We'll come back to that a bit later. But one of the things that we learn later is that two, two dreams communicate certainty. So when Pharaoh has the two dreams... Joe says, ah, the reason you had two dreams is because it's certain. 
It's a done deal. Everything will be confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. It's a done deal. All right? As we keep reading, uh, the father sends him later after this hatred narrative is built up, sends him to go see his brothers. We'll pick up in verse 18. And as he, Joseph's on his way to go see his brothers out farming with their sheep, it says, but they saw him in the distance. And before, they reached, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. He comes, that dreamer, they said to each other. Come, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Evil laugh here. <laughs> when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. No, throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness. But don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and then take them back to his father later. But when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. It's profound to me and the first thing that I really notice in the story as I'm looking at Joseph is that even though he knew his brothers hated him, even though he knew his brothers were jealous of him, even though he knew his brothers resented him, even though he was on his own, I mean, he might have had an entourage with him, or that's not really explained here, but even though he was on his own with them and was in a very vulnerable position, he still wore his robe. He, he wore the very thing that stirred jealousy in them. I mean, they hated him before the dreams. It wasn't just the dream thing. The dreams was maybe a bit of a clincher. They hated him because Dad loved him. Multiple wives. You remember the story of Jacob. He's the one that fought over the work seven years for one daughter and was, you know, got Rachel that was his favourite. Joseph was Rachel's son. Part of the reason he was the favourite as well. Okay, he was Rachel's son. This is my, this is the son I have with my favourite wife. You know, the one I worked all those years for, and he was favoured. And yet he still wore that cloak even though he knew his brothers hated him for it. That's a profound thing, isn't it? Wouldn't you sort of get out of the visual distance from your dad and then sort of take it off and I don't want my brothers to think something of me or stir anything within them. I'm just going to tuck this away in my suitcase, in my luggage. But Joseph went and he wore that coat even in the face of intimidation even in the face of hatred, even in the face of misunderstanding, of intimidation, perhaps even danger, Joseph protected his identity. This is who I am. This is who I am. He continued to wear the coat that his father gave him. He continued to wear the coat his father gave him because after all, this is how my dad sees me. And even if you don't, that's your issue. But this is how my dad sees me. And I'm going to wear the coat that my dad gave me because I know who I am in my father's eyes. And I'm not going to surrender that identity. I'm not going to surrender or shy away from that for anybody. It would be dishonorable of me to live less than how my father sees me because it might make you feel better about yourself. Now, we don't really know much about Joseph's motives, okay? We don't know, and this is all Jews and Christians have debated this for years. Was he a bit of an arrogant? Did he, was he a bit cocky? You know, we could read it that way. Or was he maybe a bit naive? 
when he shared his second dream with his brothers, you know? Was he maybe? But we don't really know. All we know is that in this story, it's clearly the brothers that are painted in a negative, negative light, not Joseph. So there's some possibly room for speculation. But I guess what I like to see here is a man with a pure heart, and because we see that in the, as the story continues, we seem to see that before he even went through his jail experience in Potiphar's house, he seems to be a man with a pure heart and a pure motive, uh, maybe a bit naive in the way he communicated, but then, hey, he's 17. He's 17. Frontal cortex is like years from being developed, okay? So he's, he's 17. But he's a man who knew who he was. He protected his identity. He knew by grace he was his favored, father's favoured son and he knew it and he lived it. And I think that's an admirable quality. Confidence and arrogance may at times look similar, but they smell different. <laughs> Confidence and arrogance might at times appear similar, but I would like to think that his heart's motive here was pure. I'm going to wear the coat that my father gave me because honouring my dad is the most important thing for me in my life. He protected his identity and that honoured his dad. Continue reading the story and uh, he ends up in Egypt, as you know, because he's sold into slavery and chapter 39 begins like this. Joseph was taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, sorry, bought him from the Ishmaelites who'd taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Instant promotion. There you go. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, everything. You know, in the first part of the story, you hear the word hate, hate, hate. It's like a repeated Word. This is a, these literary things are good things to look out for when you're reading. What words are being highlighted? Whereas you read through this, you, I just, you constantly see the word everything, all, anything, all, everything. Let's keep reading. The Lord was with him, in, gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the house of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And, no comments. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come... I can't, can I do the voice? Come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. I can't do it. What's an Egyptian accent? Anyone? Uh... No, <laughs> come to bed with me. But, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. 
One day, however, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was there inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Everything, everything, everything. It reminded me just this morning of the idea of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Everything, 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 everything. Just not that one. Just not that one. And we see here Joseph, a very man, a man I believe who's very secure in who he was, in his identity, because when you know who you are, and this again is the difference between confidence and arrogance, when you know who you are, you also know where your boundaries are. So you can have great confidence, but also know, but I'm aware of my grace space. I'm aware that my borders and boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. My borders and boundaries are here, and that space is not mine. And that space is not mine. The arrogance tips over into the, well, everything's mine. You know. But he was confident, but he knew there was borders and boundaries in his life. Jonathan, uh, Joseph understood where his boundaries were. And so I see here in Joseph a man who's protected his identity, but now he's also protecting his integrity. He's protecting his integrity. Now, whether he was thinking in terms of property rights, it's not right for me to sleep with you because you belong to another man. Or whether he was protecting his sexual integrity, it's not right for me to sleep with you because that is wrong in and of itself. We don't know culturally how he was thinking. Uh, what we do know is that in between these chapters, there's a story of Judah and Tamar. And Tamar pretends to be a prostitute and lures Judah in. It's a funny story that's inserted there in the middle of the Joseph story for no reason. Uh, and Judah succumbs to that. So maybe it is a story of sexual integrity after all. But the point is what we see here in Joseph is a man who let his no be no and let it be no. Let it be no and let it be known that it is no. No is a powerful word. And a yes to something almost always is a no to something else. I'm happy to be a yes man when it comes to things God asks me to do. But I understand that saying yes to God also means saying no to other things. Yeah. Saying yes to one woman means saying no to others. Yeah. Saying yes to <laughs> the, the Garden of Eden means saying no to that one tree. And it is the grace of God, Titus 2 says, that actually teaches us to say no. It teaches us to say no. And that teaching is a learning thing. Okay? But the grace of God, knowing who you are, knowing that your Father has favoured you, your Father's chosen me unconditionally. My Father loves me. He's given me this coat. I did nothing to deserve it. I'm his favourite. I've got a great future. I've got a great destiny. My Father loves me. My Father favours me. And that grace empowers me, teaches me to actually say no. Because I understand that my grace has a space in my life. I spoke to a, a man this week who's not a Christian. And uh, I knew 10, 15 years ago that he was in a pretty tough place in his life, in uh, his family life. 
And I just felt as we were talking, I was just asking how that sort of situation was going. And I just said to him, you know, well done for saying no to divorce. Well done for sticking that out. I'm, I'm, that's amazing that you guys are still together and that you've done that for your kids and for your wife. I think that's uh, an, an incredible thing. And he thanked me like no one had ever said thank you for doing that before. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for sticking it out. Thank you for keeping your family together in the way that, in the way that you have. And we just began a conversation about how saying yes also means saying no to certain things. And I thought that was so commendable for him to do that, even though he said there were tough times. He used a different word than tough, but um, there were tough times. You know, sometimes saying no is the most powerful thing we can do. And sometimes saying no needs, it's good to have a father's commendation over you to hear that. I, I actually had to have that this week and said no to, to something. And I just, afterwards, I just needed the father's commendation and just said that was the right thing to say there, mate. Well done. That was the right thing to do. And I want to say to you today, I don't know what this means, but well done for saying yes. And well done for saying no. In the times that you've said no to things, thank you. <laughs> like, well done. That's really important. Please say yes and let your yes be yes. And please say no and let your no be no when you do. As this story shows, even if people misunderstand or misrepresent or misalign you, as happens now with Potiphar's wife, okay? she misrepresents him and she lies about him, the point is that no one has the power to take away your clear conscience except for you. You're the only person that has the ability to take away your conscience. And there are times, and one of the challenges of Joseph's story, as many of us understand, is the challenge of being misrepresented and misunderstood and, and those type of situations. But Joseph had a clear conscience. And I think that really helped him in that next stage of his journey, being able to go to prison, knowing that he'd done the right thing. And that is something that nobody else can take away from you. So let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And please continue to guard and protect your integrity. It's really important. Amen. Amen. We keep reading. And in chapter 39, he gets thrown into prison. And because God's hands on him, he becomes the leader in prison. In chapter 40, there's a dream of the baker and the cupbearer. He interprets those two dreams accurately. In the next chapter, Pharaoh also, as I mentioned before, has two dreams about the cows and the grain. And 13 years after his brothers betray him, uh, he is now in Egypt uh, 13 years later. And it says here in chapter 41, from verse 32, he's speaking with Pharaoh and it says, The reason the dream was given to you in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been for him to say when he'd also had two dreams that had not been fulfilled? After 13 years of having two dreams... Them not being for 13 years, he now says to Pharaoh, the reason God's given you two dreams, I know what that means. It means it's definitely going to happen and it's coming soon. And I wonder, maybe it wasn't a difficult thing. Maybe what actually happened is in that moment, he was reminded of his dreams. 
Maybe that's what happened. Maybe as he heard two dreams from Pharaoh, he found himself prophesying and saying, yes, it's definitely going to happen and it's going to happen soon. Maybe in that moment, Joseph then remembered his dreams and prophesied to himself. I don't know, but we see a powerful thing here about Joseph making that claim, even though for 30, what did I say, 17 years, he'd, 13 years, he'd lived in that unfulfilled state. Point is, he keeps going. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. There's famine, prosperity and famine coming, but you need to do something about it, Pharaoh. Pharaoh let him appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food for those good years that are coming, store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food, and that should be held in reserve for the country to be used when the seven years of famine come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Joseph, of course, here not only sees a problem, but he sees a solution. He sees a solution, and in that solution, he has the country's interests at heart. Prophetic problem-solving. There's a difference between a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom. A word of wisdom says, a word of knowledge says, I know this, I know this is coming, or I know this about something. A word of wisdom says, and now I know what to do about it. How many of you know both are helpful? <laughs> How many of you hate having one and not the other? You know, when you're like, I've got, I'm worried about something, I just don't know what to do. And... Uh, Joseph had this grace as he was prophesying to be part of the solution in that instance. And um, as Pharaoh describes him as being uh, discerning and wise. In verse 37, uh, uh, Pharaoh says, The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to his officials. And so he asked them, Can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of the gods? Or of God, singular. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made this known to you, there's no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all the people in us submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took the signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And I'm sure Joseph breathed a huge sigh of relief when Pharaoh gave him a robe. And not another cloak. Because those cloaks have got him into trouble. <laughs> Wear a cloak, your brothers kill you. Wear a cloak and Potiphar's wife grabs it. Give me a robe. Yeah, I'll try a robe this time. It's got to go a lot better. So he had a robe. He was installed into this situation. And it begins taking charge, as many of you know, and storing food. And the famine comes. And in verse 55, uh, it says, When all of Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told them, Go to Joseph and do what he says. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. In fact, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Joseph's plan saved himself, his boss, and his community. And I see a man here who's willing not just to protect his own identity, not just to protect his own integrity, but is to see beyond himself and protect, play a part in being a protector of his community. I'm going to actually protect my community. Now, sometimes if we, if we hear messages on protecting yourself, my identity, or my issues, I'm going to protect me, self-protectionism self can creep in. Yeah? 
and uh, particularly in a me-me culture, we're more, maybe more prone to that. In individualistic Western societies are more prone to that. And Joseph found the opportunity, yes, I understand I need to guard myself, but not succumb to self-protectionism, to actually see there's something beyond me. He could have taken that dream and go, well, I know what I'm going to do for the next seven years. I'm going to make sure I look after me. <laughs> no, no, no. He was in charge or he had a vision for protecting his community. I know who I am and I know whose I am. And now that I know that God has me sorted, I've got the energy to actually, it is much easier to look out and outlook and look out for other people, to go rise beyond self-protectionism and be outward focused. And Joseph took hold of that opportunity and was willing to stick his neck out to say, I'll give it a go. I'll go from being a prisoner to being second in charge of the country. That's a bit daunting. I'll, I'll do that because this community needs it. I'll stick my head out and do what it takes to have a greater level of influence in my community. Wouldn't you love to see more of that heroic quality around the place? of actually Christians, not Christians, just citizens, taking responsibility to know there are areas that we can influence our society. Business, educational system, art, architecture, <laughs> uh, government, politics, family, sporting clubs, where I can actually make an investment and be a blessing to protect my community. Amen. Come to the final part of the story and... My final thing here that I see in Joseph is, of course, his reuniting with his brothers, sort of the full circle climax of the story. Brothers, in chapter 42, come to Egypt to get food. They don't recognize him, but he sends them on their way, holds Simeon as a ransom. Uh, they go back, and this time they come with Benjamin. Joseph, of course, we don't know exactly when Benjamin was born, but he might have been a baby. Uh, when Joseph was abducted, when Joseph was taken away. We really don't know. It's hard to work out the maths. What we do know is that when Benjamin was born, Joseph's mum died. Okay, So she died in childbirth when Ben was born. Joseph's mum died. So he's, like, he's out of touch. There's no Facebook back then. He didn't really know what was going on at home and he wanted to see his full-blood brother. This is my full-blood brother, Benjamin. So that's part of the, that, that story of Benjamin coming back. Joseph tests his brothers, he threatens to hold Benjamin and Judah is the one that steps in and says, I'm willing to give my life for my brother. A turnaround from the start of the story. I'm willing to give my life for my father's favourite son. Amazing. Judah steps in. Jesus comes from Judah's line. And in chapter 45, this is where Joseph reveals himself in verse 12. It says, Joseph... No, well, sorry. 45 verse 12. It says, You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen, and bring my dad down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Ben embraced him weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with them. Just go to chapter 50. I see Joseph here, he relocates the whole family back to Egypt and then they're 
father uh, dies there. And amidst the fear that is... No, what happens, sorry, is that he, they all come back to Egypt and dad dies and the brothers are now afraid that they, Joseph may hold a grudge against him. All these years, he's going to hold a grudge and they make up a story and they said, Joe, now that it's just you and us and dad's gone, by the way, he left a will and in that will he said, you're not allowed to hurt us. Okay, yeah, okay. So all this, all this time, even though it's shown such compassion to them, they still have this grudge uh, the, they fear that he's holding a grudge against them. And at the end of the book, chapter 50, verse 19, it says, Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? After all, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for my good and for good, full stop, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to him. It's almost like Joseph's way of saying, you know what? No forgiveness is required here because I've never been holding this against you. Who am I to hold a grudge all these years? After all, am I in the place of God? Not that God is a grudge holder, but am I in the one that can judge other people? Am I in that place? So Joseph is protecting his identity He's protected his integrity when no one else really was looking. He protected his community. And all along, he protected his heart. He protected his heart. And I think one of the reasons that he was in a whole place to be able to bring other people to wholeness is he was able to protect his heart from one of the most hurtful things that can get a grip of us at times, the things like unforgiveness and grudge-bearing, resentment and bitterness. And if you understand the power of those things. Hebrews talks about this in chapter 12 where it says, watch out for each other and make sure no one misses the revelation of God's grace. Make sure no one lives with a root of bitterness sprouting within them which will only cause trouble and poison the hearts of many. A root of bitterness that will poison others. Proverbs 4 says, and we know this verse well, Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else. Because it determines the course of your life. Isn't that fascinating that it wasn't Potiphar? It wasn't the brothers that determined the course of Joseph's wife. It wasn't the Ishmaelites who determined the course of Joseph's life. It wasn't Potiphar's wife. It wasn't the famine. There was something about this heroic quality of guarding his heart. There's something about actually stewarding my heart. This is my ground that God has given me, that that has a significant part to play in determining who I am today. I think that's a powerful, a powerful thing. Guard your heart and protect your heart. Being a protector is a noble thing and it's a heroic quality. And I'm wanting us to see that in Joseph today. Because life is unfair. Not everyone will understand you. Not everyone will stand with you. But you do have an unfair advantage. Your dad favours you. Okay, not everyone will understand you. Not everyone will get you. Not everyone will like you. Some people won't even hate you. But you are favoured by your dad. God has spoken an identity over you that is special. And your job is to wear the coat that your father has given you. Unashamed unabashed 
and protect your identity, even if it was just in your own mind. I know who I am because this is what my dad thinks of me. Life is challenging. There are temptations, there are testings, there's decisions around every corner. But we have the ability to say yes and we have the ability to say no and to say it and to mean it, to protect our integrity. Because even when people treat us, throw us in a pit, I couldn't help that from happening, I couldn't say no to that, there are things we can say no to, to guard our conscience, to guard our heart. Life involves great needs all around us. There are many needs around us. There are many fears, many concerns, many ups and many downs, good years and bad. And God has given you the spirit of wisdom and discernment. And not just the spirit within you so that you can survive and thrive in those times, but the spirit of God upon you, upon us, to be a blessing to others. God wants us to step out of self-protection mode and become a solutions-based people. And life involves disappointments and pain and even at times betrayal. But you have the power to protect your heart from bitterness. Not your heart from hurt. You can't protect yourself from hurt. But we can protect ourselves from the bitterness, resentment and those things because we know in Christ, we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. You know, it's a, it's a story that when the two, when Jesus goes into Simon's house and the prostitute comes in and washes his feet with her hair, and Jesus and Simon's looking at this, and Jesus says, You know, there's two people who were forgiven a debt. One was forgiven 10 bucks, one was forgiven a million dollars. Who's going to be the most thankful? Who's going to love the master the most? And Simon said, the one who's been forgiven the most. And Jesus said, well, that's exactly what it's like with this woman. I come in and you respond to me a certain way. She responds to me a certain way. Because he who knows he's been forgiven much will love other people much. And I've told you before that I hated that story growing up. Because I was a good church kid. And I thought, well, unless I'm a biking and a drug addict, sleeping with prostitutes and running, running illegal activities, and then repent, I'll never be able to love God. I have to sin a lot before I can love God a lot. And it was God's way of showing me the higher the revelation that you have of the cross and his forgiveness extended towards you, not you judging yourself by others, but you understanding before the sight of a holy God the price he went to for your forgiveness for you. When I have that understanding how much God's forgiven me, then that empowers me to forgive other people. Ain't nobody got time for unforgiveness. When I know how much God has forgiven me. Protect our hearts. Dad, we thank you today for the great heroes and heroines and even the villains that you put in the Bible. We can learn things from Potiphar's wife. We can learn from the mistakes of the brothers and just how powerful something like jealousy can be. But today, Lord, as we see the story of this great protector, Joseph, Lord, we pray that you would minister to our hearts and cause us to have a confidence, grace and strength to see ourselves called to be protectors, protectors of our community, protectors in our family. And Lord, for the part that I have to play, the grace space that you have given me, 
I stand firm in that today. I wear the cloak that my Father's given me. And today I stand with a healthy sense of pride, knowing that my dad loves me. And my dad has called me to protect and to bless other people. We take that on board today, gladly, knowing that it is your favour that empowers us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day.